morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here this morning and to bring the word. I am, uh, every time I preach, I feel like it's just a blessing. I get to sort of cherry pick and choose my very favorite passages in Scripture. And that's what I've done today. This is, uh, this is one of my favorite passages. Revelation 5, you can start turning there. Just a great, great picture. It's a great picture of an exalted Christ. I hope you'll enjoy it. Stand with me when you get to Revelation chapter 5. And I need to warn you ahead of time, we are, we are about to read the entire chapter It might be that you get tired out standing through the whole way, so feel free if you need, sit down. If you're tuckered out, we know that you're standing with us in your heart. Read along with me, Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Father, we are so thankful for your word and we pray that it would speak to our hearts today, that, they would, that, it would, that it would change our hearts to 
make us more like Christ and to make us better worshipers, God. We pray this in your name. Amen. Maybe seated. All the time when I teach, I feel like every sermon is the same sermon. Uh, when I was in high school, um, that's exactly how I felt about Dan Martin's teaching. I felt like every sermon was the same sermon. Um, and I mean that in a good way. It seemed like he would always get back to the problem of man. And um, I, I feel like that all the time, and I kind of feel like that today, um, that this is the same sermon that I have preached many times, just kind of a new passage. And I promise you this concept is one that I have preached to myself more than anything else. I love preaching to myself in the car. I would recommend that to you. Um, And this concept that we're going to be looking at today is one of the most basic, fundamental concepts in Christianity, and it's worship. Worship is what we're talking about today. And um, that is, uh, the gospel is maybe the most basic aspect of Christianity. That is what makes a Christian is faith in and belief in the gospel itself. But past that, once you are a believer, worship is something that characterizes every single, belie- every single believer. If you are a believer, then you are a worshiper of Christ. If you do not worship Christ, then you cannot be a believer. And worship, I'm convinced more and more, is the answer and the solution to all of your problems. Well, we'll touch on that in a minute. First, I want to give you, I want to give you just a working definition of worship. So that way you know what I mean as we talk about worship and, and its synonym that appears multiple times in this passage, uh, the idea of worthiness. Worthiness. And so worship, I like simple definitions, so my definition is simple. Honor and adoration. If you worship God, you ascribe to God honor and adoration. We don't have PowerPoint today. Just do your best. I'll try and be clear. Honor and adoration is worship. Honor, I think we understand, right? We all innately get that we are supposed to honor God and we have honor in essentially every aspect of life, right? In family life, honor is the norm. Children are supposed to honor and respect their parents, We have this in the workplace as well. Your superior, your boss, is someone that you are expected to honor and respect. Someone who is above you positionally is someone to be honored. Um, And that's just just how that works. And I think most of you probably get that aspect of worship. You are used to honoring God. You understand that he is positionally above you. And you show him the respect that is due to him. The adoration aspect is, I think, the harder one for worship. And it's a strange one. The, uh, uh, it is January 8th today, uh, I believe, right? And the Christmas season just ended, and that is a source of extreme sadness in my household. And primarily, the, the big problem with the ending of the Christmas season is that it is now culturally unacceptable to listen to Christmas music. Um, I'm sure some of you feel the same way. You love Christmas music more than anything else. For, for me, it's not as big of a deal because I'll be listening again by February. But um, I, 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 some of you, I'm sure, have a favorite Christmas song. My favorite Christmas song 
is, O come all ye faithful. Love that song. Love that song. And the chorus in particular is what always, it just always strikes me as so vivid. It's just a repetition of the same line, O come let us adore him. O come let us adore him. O come let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Adoration is meant to be part of worship. And I've asked this question to people multiple times, but I'm wondering, do you ever think about Christ like that? Do you worship Christ in an adoring kind of way, this deep, heartfelt, emotional love and joy in Christ? When you're out on the plaza, right, you've got a Danish in one hand and coffee in the other hand, do you ever look at your clock and be like, oh, it's time to adore Christ? Right? And like the song, do you invite other people? Come adore Christ with me. When you pray before a meal, do you teach your children? Right? Thank him for the food and adore Christ. It's this love aspect that we miss in worship. And I think it's so important. And I think we'll see this in this passage. But, but that's what I mean when I say worship, honor and adoration. Not only that, when we talk about worthiness, it's a very similar concept. Some, if God is worthy, if Christ is worthy, that means he deserves our worship. It is right to give him worship. And so how do you show someone to be worthy? How do you show someone to be worthy? By giving them your time and attention. That's what I mean by worthiness. So those concepts, I kind of intermingle all the time. Worship is honor and adoration. Worthiness is time and attention. If something is worthy, it is, it is deserving of your time more so than other things. You only have so much time, so you give your time to the things that are most worthy. When you must use your time on something else, your attention is still focused on something that's worthy. And so I wonder if how much time you devote to the worship of Jesus Christ. And I wonder when you are forced to do other things, how often your attention goes back to Christ. Worship and worthiness are very basic fundamental concepts of Christianity. And I'm convinced, as I said before, that worship is essentially the answer to every problem that you have. I don't know if you've ever asked a question along the lines of how do I stop, fill in the blank, doing something that I don't want to do anymore, right? How do I stop you know, being angry? How do I stop wasting time? How do I stop irresponsibility? Or on the flip side, how do I start you know, fill in something that's good? How do I start being a spiritual leader at home? How do I start reading my Bible more often? What are the answers to your problems? And it can get confusing if everything has an individual, uh, if everything has an individual answer, right? I have three easy steps for getting over anger and five easy steps for becoming a spiritual leader. And now suddenly you have eight steps because you kind of want to do both. And every problem you have sort of adds on to these steps, these things to do. Not only does that get overwhelming, but it completely minimizes the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Your sanctification, your becoming more like Christ is the Holy Spirit's work. Is the Holy Spirit's work. Christ is a conqueror on your behalf. Christ has completed your redemption for you. What can you add to the work of Christ? And so working harder is not the answer. 
We love to be cross-centered in the salvation. We love the cross. We talk about the cross. There's nothing we can do. Salvation is by grace, through faith, and not of works. And we're just so cross-centered with salvation, which is great. But sanctification, again, just becoming more like Christ is the same way. We should be just as cross-centered. You need, if you want to get rid of sin, just in general, if you want to stop sinning, and if you want to start being righteous, the answer is not to look at yourself and think, okay, I need to stop doing these kind of things and start doing these kind of things, and I'll be accountable about this. And every time I'm in this situation, I'll respond like that. And all these different ideas, what you need more than anything else is to take your eyes off of yourself and to focus them on Christ in worship. So then how do we, how do we get to worship? How do we, how do we start worshiping? And really, the answer to this question is why I chose the passage today. And I've been consumed, and here's the answer, I've been consumed with passages in the Bible that give a glimpse of the glory of God. You will worship God if you see him for who he really is. Glorious and mighty and worthy of praise. And the Bible has so many passages that show him to be those things. Isaiah 6 is a fantastic passage where Isaiah is in the throne room and there's this, there's this crazy scene where there's seraphim and, and smoke and noise and earthquakes. And what does he do? He falls on his face in repentance of sin and worship of God. Just earlier in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, uh, John sees this, this image, this vision of Christ's glory. And there's, this, there's these awesome descriptions of Christ. Glorious and mighty. And John falls on his face as though dead. I'm convinced, I'm convinced that having a vision for God's glory is the answer to causing you to worship, which will make you more like Christ. It's a basic answer for every problem. And so that's why we're looking at Revelation 5. I want you to have a vision for God's glory. And leading up to Revelation 5, chapter 4, 4 and 5 really go together. 5 focuses on Christ. 4 focuses on the throne room of God, right? We get the setting mostly in chapter 4, and in chapter 5, we get the person of Christ. And so all of this, um, all of chapter 5 is, is going on in the place described in chapter 4. And let me tell you, 4 has some very interesting descriptions. Just look quickly in chapter 4, in verse 3, right? We get the appearance of him who sat on the throne. This is a description of God the Father, and he, it, he had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. These are sort of reddish, orangish, brownish kind of gems. So God has this, this kind of reddish hue. Around the throne was a rainbow with the appearance of, of an emerald. So we get a throne, sort of reddish, image of God sort of shining brightly. There's a rainbow going over it that while it's a rainbow, it's still kind of a greenish rainbow. Around the throne are 24 thrones and sitting on those thrones are elders. 
A friend of mine was delighted that I was preaching on this passage because I got to be the one to tell you who and what the elders are. It's kind of a, uh, it's kind of a confusing, hotly debated. The elders, people usually refer to them as either men or angels. And even after you decide on one of those, there are three different options for each of them underneath it. Um, so it may, uh, both of them are actually pretty good options. Um, plenty of people, plenty of people believe both. I think the better solution, uh, I think the better answer is that these Elders are actual men. They're people. Um, uh, uh, we get that because elders isn't essentially ever ascribed to angels in the Bible. It's always talking about people. And uh, in verse 4, we find out that the elders are wearing white robes with a crown, and they have thrones. And as it turns out, just a chapter before, in chapter 3, we find out that saints, right, believers, are promised one day to receive white garments and crowns and thrones. And then we suddenly see this here. And so I think the best answer is that these are men and they are representing the church. But anyway, they're there. So we got the one you see on the throne, Jasper and Carnelian, rainbow emerald, thrones, elders, crazy attire. Then we have these four living creatures who appear to be cherubim. They have crazy faces. One looks like a lion, one an ox, one a man, and one an eagle. They have multiple wings. They're covered in eyes. There's an unbelievable amount amount of noise as they're all yelling God's glory day and night they never cease to say holy 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 is the Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come and they're in a constant state of worship and so this is this is the scene right oh I forgot the best part out of the throne is coming flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder I'd love to have a chair like that right that'd be awesome um, there's just there's just lightning coming out of it because it just is that much more awesome And so that's what's happening in chapter 4. That's the stage that's been set when we get to chapter 5. And in chapter 5, verse 1, God, the Father, begins to stir. And it's, it's as if he leans forward and he stretches out his hand and in his hand is a scroll. The scroll was written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. There's a lot of, as it turns out, there's a lot of debate over a lot of the things in Revelation. Um, what is the scroll? Um, scrolls were usually made of papyrus, um, and the way they made them, uh, uh, the fibers of the plant on one side would go horizontally, and the other side they'd go vertically, because that's just how they had to make it. And usually you'd only write on one side of the pop- of the papyrus, the side that went horizontally, because it's difficult to write across vertical fibers. Does that make sense? Um, so it wasn't common for it to be written on both sides. If it ever was written on both sides, it was almost always a legal document. I mean, what they would do, they would write out the terms of some kind of contract or document. They'd roll it up and seal it, and then they'd briefly describe it on the back side. And this, the best answer, I think, for what this is, and, and I think because John immediately recognizes it, it would seem, is uh, that he would have recognized this as a title deed. More seals meant, some, meant, meant that it was more important. This had seven seals, which again is kind of the, the number of sort of perfection and completion. And so John would have understood this to be a title deed, and I think there's really only one answer for what it was a title deed for. It was a title deed for the earth. This document 
represents ownership of and dominion over the earth. And this is what God the Father, the one who's seated on the throne, is now holding in his right hand. From here, the passage divides pretty neatly up into three different sections. There's going to be a search for the one who is worthy, then we'll discover the one who is worthy, and then the last part of the passage, the worship the one who is worthy. So right now, verses 2 through 4 is the search for one who is worthy. And we see this right away in verse 2. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So this mighty angel comes. We don't know who it is. And he just pronounces something, right? He, he issues a challenge. Who is it who's worthy to take this scroll? Who is worthy to inherit the earth? Who has the divine right to take this scroll? Who is by themselves of the proper character in order to take this? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. There's, there's no one. You get the sense that he sort of shouted out, and, and, and I picture it in my mind, just sort of echoing over the halls of heaven. And we know not only is the challenge issued in heaven, but also on earth and under the earth. Literally, in, in sort of nonchalant fashion, We've just searched the entire universe. Ever have an old computer and try and do a basic function? You can hear it like grinding underneath the case, right? Uh, I, uh, 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 this is kind of the opposite of that, right? It's able to, to perform huge, massive searches instantly. No one is worthy. The mighty angel himself perhaps could have taken up the challenge, but he doesn't. Michael or Gabriel could have perhaps stepped up, but they don't. Any number of angels, perhaps that we don't know about, might have been worthy to take the scroll. And there's no one. Old Testament saints are in heaven. What about Abraham? What about Moses? What about David, Isaiah, Elijah? No one. Some of the apostles themselves would have been in heaven. Perhaps Peter or Paul could have taken the scroll. And there is, there is no one. The entire universe is devoid of someone who's worthy to take the scroll. And John began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy. He's, he's weeping at this point. And it's not out of simple curiosity. Man, I wonder, what's, I wonder what's inside that scroll. But he's weeping, I think, because he understands exactly what it is and what it would mean for no one to be worthy. This is... If no one will take the scroll, then all of the promises within won't be fulfilled. If no one takes the scroll, then that means there is no one worthy to finally redeem all of creation. There's no one with the divine right to rule the earth and to to have dominion over Satan and over sin and to reverse their effects. And so that's why he weeps, that there, would, that there would be no one to inherit the earth. 
Verse 5 is where we get our first change. Uh, We've been searching for the one who is worthy, and now is the discovery of one who is worthy. And these verses 5 through 7 may be just some of my favorite verses in the Bible. I love them. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Stop crying, John. You think that there's no one worthy, but there is. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. We get finally a description of the champion, of the one who is capable of taking the scroll. And we get two messianic titles. The lion of the tribe of Judah would have been from Genesis 49, 49, 8 through 10, where there's a prophecy for Judah and his inheritance, and that uh, uh, the scepter would not pass. And they, they, reference, they reference a lion that would come from Judah. And so that's the idea, is that Christ is this lion from Judah. Christ is a conqueror. Christ is a destroyer of his enemies. And it's interesting how wrong this concept of Christ as the lion uh, was. It's interesting how wrong everyone was about this concept of Christ during his earthly ministry. They wanted him to be a lion while he was on earth. They wanted him to have political aspirations. They wanted Christ to free them from Rome's tyranny. The problem was not that Christ is not a lion, that he is not a conqueror. The problem is that Christ's timetable was different than what they wanted while he was on earth. They killed him in part because they wanted him to be this lion before he was ready. He's a lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Uh, this is another Old Testament messianic title. We see it in Isaiah 11, 1 and 10. It means that he is, he is descended from David. He's sprung up from David. He's in the line of David and therefore of kingly lineage. He has the right to take the Davidic throne. And so this is, this is, and David was a man of war. And so this is, this is the conquering hero that we have. He is a lion. He is from the line of David. He has conquered sin and death. And he can open the scroll. And so in verse 6, again, remember the, the scene from, verse, uh, from, from chapter 4. We have all these goings on, all this noise. John is somehow seemingly have to, seeming to have this quiet conversation off to the side with this one elder while everything in chapter 4 continues to go on. And all of a sudden, all the noise seems to drown out and suddenly there is a spotlight on someone next to the throne. And it's the conqueror. But look how he's described. First a lion, then a root, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The lion, the conqueror, is a lamb. And this term for lamb would have been immediately obvious to anyone who heard this. They would have understood that term to be specifically referring to the Passover lamb. And he was standing as if he had been slain. It looked as if he should be dead. 
but he was alive. He had all the markings of one who had been slaughtered, yet was standing there in God's throne room. And the way, the way, they, the way they slaughtered lambs is they would, they would cut them on the neck from collarbone to collarbone, and so they would, they would bleed. Um, and so that's, that's, that's this lamb right here is, is, is a bloody, seemingly slaughtered lamb. He would have been, you know, the blood on his, on his chest would have, been, would have been dark, would have been warm and sticky. He would have looked like, he would have looked like a lamb who had been slain. Uh, in verse 9, we get the same concept. We're skipping ahead a little here, um, but, but we'll come back to the other verses. They talk about how he was the lamb who was slain, and look at this, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God. I want to talk about this concept for just a minute. This concept of the blood of the Lamb. Because I think there are, um, there are maybe few things that are more important than this concept. That we understand why blood was shed. When we, talk about, when we talk about the Lamb, it's not just that he bled, right? Christ couldn't have conquered if he had just, you know, pricked his finger and bled a little bit. When we talk about blood, what we really mean is death. That Christ died. That Christ's blood was shed. And so the question is why? And maybe some of you have asked this before, right? If God wanted to accomplish our redemption, if God wanted to get us, you know, forgiven for our sins, why didn't he just say, be forgiven, right? Wouldn't that have been easier? Wouldn't that be much simpler for God to just forgive or maybe, you know, require faith or whatever? Why couldn't, why blood? Why did Jesus have to die? What was the reason for that? And the answer is in Romans 6.23. If you, uh, it wouldn't take long in a search for the answer to this question for, to come to that, to come to that passage. Romans 6.23 tells us very specifically that the wages of sin is Death, right? Exactly. Some of you still go to Awana. Excellent. Um, the wages of sin is death. Death is required because of sin. So your sin is deserving of death. That's how we're going to get to this concept of the blood of the Lamb. And it's important that we understand that because my guess is most of you would in general say that you believe the Bible. But do you really believe that the wages of sin is death. This is really the first concept in the gospel. Before we can have the gospel as good news, the gospel first has to present some very bad news for us. And that's that the wages of sin is death. And it's, that is a serious, serious statement. My son is 14 months old. Um, he's like this big or so, and he drools a lot and runs around the house. And he has started saying words. Um, actually, that's not true. He really only has one word, and that's dog. Um, he can say dog. And um, the problem is that essentially every animal is a dog, and so I think even that is being a little bit generous with him. Um, but one day, one day soon, I have no doubt, he is going to learn a new word. Every parent's favorite word. It's a word that we tell him all the time. I, I'm sure that it's going to happen. He's going to learn the word no. 
No, is what he'll say. We tell him no all the time. No, Jeremiah, don't eat trash. No, Jeremiah, don't eat dirt. No, Jeremiah, don't put mom's phone in your mouth, right? Why does he eat everything? I have no idea. Um, But we tell him no, and one day he is going to his little independent self, right? He is, and can we all agree that it's sinful to, uh, to tell your parents no, to disobey? Um, he's going to sin. And I want you to imagine that you get to be there in that moment. You get to witness him in all his sinful glory. Not that he was innocent before, but just imagine that moment. If the wages of sin is death, if that's what we really mean, then justice, true, right justice, would be in that moment for God to look down from heaven, part the clouds, send a lightning bolt down from heaven through my chimney, making a 90 degree turn in my fireplace, It should strike my son in the head, killing him instantly. And if the wages of sin is death, if my wife and I are honest, we would look at the charred remains of his corpse and say, he deserved it. That is right, his death. Because the wages of sin is death. That's what we mean. That's how serious sin is. How many times should you have been chimney lightninged? Right? How many times should you have died? I'll make another Christmas reference, right? When you wake up on Christmas morning, my guess is most of you had a similar thought. My guess is most of you thought, presents, right? You were excited about what you were going to receive, right? Some of you are maybe more godly. You thought about, you know, worshiping Christ, which is great, right? But most of you, I'm sure, thought about what you were going to receive. Did any of you pause in that moment and think, oh God, thank you so much for not killing me in my sleep last night. What a, you know, what an act of grace. You should have, but you didn't. How wonderful. God should have killed you and me many, many times because the wages of sin is death and the only reason you are still alive is because he is so gracious. There's no evil in justice. God wouldn't be evil to kill you right now, to kill anyone. We all deserve it. We all should die. And right now, and all of us, before we were, before we were saved, before we were Christians, if we would have died and stood before God, the only just and right thing to do would be for our blood to be the payment for sin. That's justice. If you don't believe in Christ, then your blood is required of you should you ever stand in front of God. And this is the great news of the gospel. This is, uh, in theological terms, we refer to it as substitutionary atonement, right? Fantastic word. You guys should all memorize that phrase if you don't know it already. What we mean is that Christ is our substitute. We should have paid for our sins by our own blood, but Christ is the perfect Lamb of God, and He was slain for us. He's perfect. 
And his sacrifice is able to pay for our sins. He died for you in such a way that anyone who believes, anyone who believes can be covered by the blood of Christ. Anyone who places their faith in Christ, anyone who trusts him to have paid for their sins and turns away from their sins will be forgiven. That is the gospel. Has Christ paid for your sins by his blood? Or are you still, will you still need to pay by your own? So this is the lamb, right? This lamb who was slain. And I love that it says, uh, uh, later on in verse 9, it says that he was slain. Here it says, standing as though he had been slain. This is a reference to his resurrection. Though he was killed, he rose from the dead, he ascended to heaven, and now here we get to see him not as a humble servant, but as an exalted king. And it's amazing to me that this, that this lion, that this root... This, this, this conqueror who is the only one worthy to inherit the earth, to rule over the earth, is the same one who shed his blood for you. What a savior. What a God. And so in verse 7, this is what we've been building up to. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Without any kind of pomp or circumstance, without any kind of like strange uh, ceremony, Christ just saunters up and takes the scroll. He was found to be worthy, and now he is in possession of the title deed to the earth, and it is now his to finally and ultimately redeem. He's going to redeem the earth. He's going to free it from the bondage of sin and death. He will overcome Satan finally, ultimately. And that begins in verse 7 when he takes the scroll. That's all in discovering the one who is worthy. Finally, they worship the one who is worthy. They worship the one who is worthy. In verse, starting in verse 8 and through the end of the chapter. And you'll notice that we start to get, excuse me, we start to get larger and larger groups of worshipers here. Those participating in the worship of Christ grow and grow. And this really is a model for our own worship. They are focused on Christ just as we should be. They, they offer him honor and adoration. They give him time and attention just as we should. They remember what he's done and they look forward to what he still will do as they worship him. So when he had taken a scroll in verse 8, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. This is a method of giving uh, harps were almost always used to just give direct praise toward God. You see harps a lot in the Psalms and in the Old Testament. Incense as well was often referred to in conjunction with prayer. So you have this praise and prayer and they sang a new song 
Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. We already talked about the blood of Christ and what it accomplished. It ransomed us. It saved us from sin's penalty. But look at this from every tribe and nation and people and language. Can you imagine being John and this at this particular time. Remember, John is writing this. It's about 95, 96 AD. He's on the island of Patmos. He's in exile. The church is struggling. People are being persecuted. The seven churches at the beginning of this book, only two of them have good things, uh, uh, have good things to be said about them. There are just, just problems in the world of Christendom. And John gets this vision of the future in the throne room of God and he finds out that, there will pe- that people will be saved from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. What a relief. Can you imagine just the knowledge that it's not just that the gospel is going to survive. It's not just that God will keep the gospel from being eradicated altogether. It's that the gospel will thrive. It will reach to the ends of the earth. This must have been unimaginable at the time, given the state of the church. When I was young, I saw the movie Jurassic Park in the theaters. Uh, I went, I was sitting next to my brother. He had already seen it, and I was scared to death when the T-Rex got out of the cage and was chasing everyone around. Oh my goodness, like it was one of the most tense moments in my life. And I remember turning to my brother and just asking him, can you just can you just tell me if the kids live, right? That's all I wanted to know, right? I don't know why, why didn't I care about the adults? I'm not sure. Um, But that was, and he tells me, yeah, they live. Don't worry about it. And that was just such an intense relief for me. Just, oh, like now, now I can enjoy this, right? Everyone's not going to die. I imagine a, 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 a maybe a similar kind of feeling from John, just what What a relief. The gospel is going to thrive. People are going to be saved from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Not only will God, not only will there be a great diversity of people who are saved, but he is worthy for another reason. In verse 10, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. We will all be part of a kingdom. We will be God's subjects. We will um, participate. This is, this is talking about an earthly kingdom. When we die and go to heaven, we will not float around on clouds in some sort of ethereal, mystical state. There will be a physical new heaven and a new earth, and we will be part of that kingdom. Something to be looked forward to. Not only that, but we will be priests to our God. First Peter talks about the priesthood of the believer. Now we have uh, uh, priesthood uh, is a reference to access to God. Later, not only will we have, I mean, we have uh, access to God now through prayer. The Holy Spirit has been given to us. But we will have complete access to God as priests in the coming kingdom. We will be able to know God and serve God in ways that we can't even fathom right now. And they shall reign on the earth as well. This is a further description of the idea of kingdom. Not only will we participate in this kingdom, will we be subjects of God, but in maybe one of the most unbelievable ironies, we find out that we will in fact 
reign on earth along with Christ. Revelation talks about this two more times, that, that we will in some ways be treated, we, we will be co-heirs with Christ and we will reign along with him. What a strange thought. How completely undeserving we are. But Christ qualifies us for that privilege by his own worthiness. So I want you to get a sense of this, this sort of building worship. First, there was a single elder who talked. Next, who told them about the, the worthy Lamb of God. Next, we have the 24 and the four living creatures all worshiping him together. Now in verse 11, we get an even wider net of worship. I looked and heard around the throne, the living creatures and elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. There's suddenly... Just there's the throne and then the 24 thrones and the, and the living creatures. And now outside of that, we get an innumerable number of angels that myriads and myriads literally is 10,000 times 10,000. 10,000 was the biggest number they had. And so it's the biggest we got times the biggest we got plus a little bit more too, right? That's a great phrase. Myriads and myriads. And then thousands of thousands, right? When I, again, when I was young, we used to, uh, uh, we, we would, we would talk about stuff that we liked, right? I, you know, I, or, uh, I, I like that in infinite number of times. Then my brother would be like, oh, infinity plus one, right? And that's the idea, right? There's infinity and then a little bit more too. Um, myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands all talking about the worthiness of God. He is not just worthy because of what he's accomplished and what he will accomplish, but he's worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He should get everything. And that's why we worship him, because he is worthy to receive all of it. And so now we already have a seemingly infinite number of worshipers, and yet we get still more starting in verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. Suddenly we have the entirety of creation. There is not a single person or thing left out. Even under the earth, demons, lost souls have no choice suddenly but to worship God who is in control, who has rightfully inherited the entire universe. And look at this. I love, in verse 4, remember, it's the throne and and the one seated on the throne is the emphasis. In in chapter 5, it's the lamb who's the emphasis. But we have this great marriage of them in verse 13. Here's what everyone in creation is saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The lamb and the one who is seated on the throne equal in, in, in deserving glory. Praise them exactly the same. This is beautiful Trinitarian worship. And they are, you know, may they receive this forever and ever, right? Infinite blessing, infinite honor, infinite glory, infinite might. They are both worthy to receive. And that is the sort of worship that we should be offering them. The four living creatures said amen. The elders fell down and worshipped. And this vision of Christ 
This vision of God should cause in us the same kind of response. It's worship. Worship. Is there anyone here you think that somehow didn't want to give God honor and adoration? Do you think that they somehow had this vision of Christ and thought, he's, he's not as deserving of honor as I thought? Or they saw Jesus, right, or the one sitting on the throne and thought, you know, I was expecting to adore him more. No one, right? Do you think anyone was ever tempted to sin when they saw uh, God like this? I I love the example in Isaiah when he has this uh, uh, vision of, we find out in John 12, it's of Christ. He's, he's, He's a vision of Christ in Isaiah 6. What does he do? He falls on his face and says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. He recognizes sinfulness. Do you think anyone in heaven would struggle with a desire for sin when they see God like this? It's the same way with you. The answer to stop sinning, the answer to start being more righteous is not to come up with a series of steps and things to do and to look inward on how you can be better, but it's to fix your eyes on Christ to have a vision of his glory and his excellence. That will cause worship. That is how the Holy Spirit will change your heart. Worship is how you will become more like Christ. And worship is what you will be doing forever and ever. Let's pray. God, we love we love your word and how, what it reveals about Christ. I pray that we would be great worshipers of you, Father. I pray that we would honor and adore you, not just with our whole lives, but forever and ever. I pray this in your name. Amen.